Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For over 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers all around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all your favorite labels, including Cauldron Films, Arrow, Synapse, Severin, Mondo Macabro, and many more from all corners of the globe. Whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you've been craving. Shop online at Diabolic DVD. That is D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K DVD.com or visit the sister company cauldron-films.com. P.S. All orders are shipped in a box. So once again, visit DiabolicDVD.com. Welcome to Colors of the Dark Podcast. I am your host, Elra Kane, and joining me as always, Dr. Rebecca McKendry. Yo, what's up? Uh, you tell me. <laughs> crank? Um, crank is up? Is that what you're up on? Crank, crank, no, I am mm. not on crank. Um, right now, I, I had some pizza. Oh, good. Um, I have a lot of mosquito bites on my legs, and um, that's because I decided to go for a walk tonight, which apparently that's that's a thing. And um, yeah, that's that's where I'm at. It's been it's been a day. So yeah, but I'm doing okay. How are you doing? No, I don't think anything's changed. I feel like I've been. I don't even feel like any time has passed since last we did this. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you just blinked. Yeah, and it was then, like a long boom, weekend. We're back. Uh, had some nice time with my uh, a friend of mine from you know college, which has been nice. It always feels like time travel when you spend time with somebody from that period, which is always fun yeah. uh, for filmy stuff. And that, so that was nice. Um, my editor has COVID, so that's been a little quiet. Oh, uh, that sucks. You know? How is he doing? Well, apparently it's over. So COVID doesn't exist anymore. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm just confused because oh. apparently that's the case. Uh, so I don't know. Okay. Uh, but okay. yeah, no, he's, I think he's, I think he's sick. So, uh, sick, sick. So, uh, other than that, just, uh, here I am watched a lot of movies. In the last little so while. So did I. And you're on your second podcast of the day. Yeah, I'm so getting a little trooper. loopy. I'm loopy. But, you know, hey, it's all worth it. It's worth it for the cause. We have something very fun in the second half of the show that we've never done before. So that's going to be interesting. I'm kind of excited yeah. about this. It's going to be interesting. I got to say, so um, Halloween season is uh-huh. upon us, which means um, two things. I have purchased every Trader Joe's pumpkin product that they have. Um, by the way, the pumpkin cheesecake is like, holy fucking shit. Ooh, okay. Like, like, oh, my! I would like beat my way through a crowd for that stuff. It is amazing. It's also 450 calories a slice, which is kind of next level. Yeah. But um, it's so worth it. It's really good. Um, anyway. Anyway, so Trader Joe's pumpkin stuff. And the second is I decorated the shit out of my front yard. Um, So that was definitely uh, my afternoon when I got home today is we broke out all the skeletons and I was like, what do we have a lot of? And the answer is camping gear. So I now have a pack of skeletons camping in my front yard. Like we set up a whole scene. Um, So yeah, it's adorbs. And I am so excited. And do you have any Halloween events planned? I feel like we need to go to Halloween Horror Nights one I don't think I'm here for much of Halloween. I I have to go to New York. I'll be in New York uh, for some stuff. But I don't know. Oh yeah, you're there for like two weeks. No, no, right? it's just a few days of work. But it's uh, but it does usually come right in that key area. I mean, out where I live, there's really cool 
um, haunted house areas. Like, you know, there's a whole, just like there's that area that in Santa Clarita where they go to town on Christmas, like a whole street oh, yeah. that just goes to town. It's the same for Halloween. So I always like to like walk through that because it's so crazy. Um, but yeah, this year, this year I feel, it's not that I'm not in the spirit. I will be in the spirit come October 1st. That's when it takes me over. I don't believe in it in September. I'm, I try to hold off for those last three, four days and then I get really into it. So I don't know though. This year I feel like I'm out of it. I don't know what's going on. Like, I don't know what's up. Oh, we got to get you in. Yeah. I don't know. You and I, we'll do Halloween Horror Nights. And like, I, I don't know if I'm like capable of doing that uh, in normal lines ever again. Because we've done the front of line. Thing. Oh, no. No, we we're getting front of line. Oh, okay. No, I feel that. I've been spoiled yeah. and I can't go can't back. Go back. Um, well, Beyond no, Fest no. is coming up. So that's something that we've got. to. Yeah. And we're doing Beyond Fest. Yeah. I've got a ton of horror events planned that I'm really excited about. Like I'm doing the new Bev Cartoon Club. I'm super excited about. Like I've got a bunch of stuff. Um, this coming weekend, I'm going to Disneyland's Bats Day, which is like the goth day at Disneyland, um, which is honestly like the best day of the year to go. So I'm excited about that. But yeah, and plus this uh, for I always do my, like we always do our 30 uh, our 31 days of horror deep cuts list, which I'm sure we'll be doing again this year. Um, and then I always do like my personal ones that I put up on Instagram. And this year I decided I'm going to watch a new film every day because I have a stack of movies that I have not seen yet. So I am excited to kind of dive into stuff I've never seen. Since I am trying to make it my goal for October to watch a lot of new stuff that I have not seen before and to kind of clear off my to-watch shelf, which seems to be ever-growing, I started early and decided to watch um, a lot of new stuff for this week that I had not seen before, some old and some new, including a couple of shark films that I am watching for an upcoming documentary. And uh, one of them, I don't have a lot to say about this, but I'm going to kick off with it because I definitely have to give it a mention. So Steven Scarlatta had recommended back when he and Josh Miller were on the show um, a month or two ago for shark exploitation. He had recommended this Chinese film to me called Blood Bite from 2020. And he straight up was like, it is a Chinese ripoff of Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> and I was like, okay, Deep Blue Sea, I am so into this. And that is exactly what it is. As Aquarium um, that is looking for some new attraction decides to make this like mutated genetic shark um and it keeps outsmarting them and it breaks out of its cage and it's killing everything else at the aquarium and then it's running rogue and i'm just gonna um i'm sorry i'm gonna go a little bit into spoilery territory for blood bite because um you know for the two people who watch it i think this might even be a bit of an enticement to get you to watch it um when you find out that they have been genetically altering the shark one of them's like, well, what DNA is just is in this shark? And then a character looks at him and goes, it's mine. <laughs> and then you find out he basically spliced the, the shark and that it's his DNA. So he has to outsmart himself <laughs> as a shark. And that's kind of the setup of it. And oh my God, the VFX in this were so bad. It was hilarious. Like eyeline issues, like where the shark will look at them and they'll look at the shark, but there's like two foot gap between the two. Um, it was just absolutely hilarious. So don't go into this thinking that it is going to be the most brilliant shark film you've ever seen scene. But if you have always said, you know, I really need a ripoff film of Deep Blue Sea um, that is mixed with Splice and somehow has really bad VFX, Blood Bite 2020. It was on Amazon and I don't think, I think it was with Freebie. I don't think I paid anything for it. Wow. Um, and it's definitely a hoot for an evening. All right. Well, that sounds totally up your alley. Right? Um, not up my alley. I'll do a couple not up my alley. Um, 
uh, catalog this under totally redundant, and that is the Goodnight Mommy remake. I'm sure every Oh, I have heard so much about this. Yeah, I'm sure everyone's thinking about watching. There's nothing wrong with this movie. Don't get me wrong. There's there's no one who would catalog it like it's a bad movie. It's just redundant. It, it I only watched it out of hopes that they would do something different than the other film, which I only really like. I don't like it that much like just the direction it kind of mm-hmm. goes the twist i never really cared for but the in this version and so if you haven't seen either version you know maybe be careful around as i explain this but the twist in this one you see about you know five seconds into the movie just because of eyelines it's like insane how fast everything's given away in this one and the the one reason i wanted to watch it was also i, I like naomi watts a lot a lot of the time and thought oh mm-hmm. this could be interesting and the direction's totally fine everything's fine but there's nothing about it that pushes anything different and the one thing it does it's not as mean and it's not quite as stylish as the because the original really does have a kind of haneke-esque style about it but yeah it um, does but where this one really just it's such a bummer is and I, I know our friend dick said the same thing after he saw it which is it has these two dream sequences that are so freaking good and scary for a second that when it first happens you go oh is this the story is this the twist you see the mommy peeling part of her skin off and, un- oh. and underneath is this black, like weird, like kind of almost like a burn victim skin underneath. And you're like, oh, is this what what the new version's going to be? And then the kid wakes up. And then two minutes later, they have another dream where the, the, the thing without any skin comes out. And I'm like, those two scenes alone were two of my favorite like dream moments of the year. And if that had been the movie, it would have been the coolest freaking movie of the year. And like, instead it's just a dream. And again, it goes back to something I keep saying, but it's like, if your best scene in your movie is your dream, you are totally fucked because you've, yep. you've mispromised your film. You can have dream scenes. I'm a big fan of dream scenes as long as they have some correlation to what's going on. And if it's just, if it's just a chance to get weird and then go back to something that's a little flat. So it, to me, is really disappointing. That said, if you hadn't seen the original, this might be a more accessible version. I assume that's the point of a remake like this is not yeah. for horror fans. It's for everyone on Amazon who didn't see Goodnight Mommy because otherwise it's exactly the same. So yeah, my horror students had immediately reported back that this one literally did nothing different that like every plot point, every twist from the original, it's all there accounted for so much so that they said that even the production design looks remarkably similar. The house like they looks were trying very to make similar. the same film. Yeah. All the um, glass. Which is so disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I guess if they're just trying to make a, you know, one that's in English. Okay. Um, um, I just hate it when they do that. Yeah. Like I, they said that, you know, even down to like the masks and things like that are just so similar that if you compare them side by side, it felt like a shot by shot. Yeah. If I was um, going to remake something, I mean, let me in is obviously made some bold choices that were different, like mm-hmm. in terms of point of view of the children, which I thought was great. It was a little too soon after let me, I uh, let the right one in, but, but for me, yeah, just give us a whole different twist at the end. Give us a, la- a different third act and it's worth remaking. Like I would yeah. totally follow this movie if it gave us a different ending. It, they, she's an actress. I don't recall if in the first one she's an actress. I couldn't remember that. But in this one, she's an actress. And I started, there, there's a key moment about halfway through where I was like, oh, is she actually not their mother? Is she? Are, are they going to do a thing where, like a noir, where she is getting plastic surgery to look like the mom to inherit something that was the vibe it gave off for a few beats so i got mm-hmm. kind of excited like oh that would be interesting and then of course it's just the same as the original. you just you just wrote a really cool movie uh, well, I, I did i did <laughs> me and dick did say afterwards why don't we write the movie we want that to be <laughs> yeah it's a very good point sometimes that's what you, we have to do as fans you know 
Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to go to one that I absolutely love. This is a rewatch for me. Um, and everyone needs to go watch this while it is on Shutter. And this is Perfect Blue. Yep. And um, this is a damn near perfect movie. So this is from 1997. And I remember somebody giving this to me when I was in college and I was still living in the dorms. Like I remember watching this in my dorm room and just being completely floored by it because I had not seen anything like this at the time. Like it was just completely like adult level Japanese anime. I had never seen anything like this. Um, and so 1997, um, Satoshi Kon director, um, later on I watched, she's got a bunch of films, but Tokyo Godfather and Paprika, I'd say are definitely absolutely amazing. If you have not seen Paprika, it's just ridiculously good. Just like perfect blue. Yeah. He hasn't gotten um, many films, sadly, so you can watch them all. That's the good thing about it. Yeah. Sadly, he, he passed away from pancreatic cancer. Answer, um, young. So we've only got a couple of films from him, but they're all really tight. Um, but Perfect Blue is about a member of a Japanese um, girl band, like an like a pop idol group um, named Cham. And she is at the height of her fame and she is really sick of being this kind of like pop icon. And she decides to retire from music to pursue acting. And you really, you realize in the first scene that there is this guy who is just obsessed with her and is stalking her and is following her around. Um, but you realize also really quickly that by walking away from this pop scene, she basically becomes a nobody. Like no one in the acting scene knows her. She's taking these tiny bit roles um, that are really quite exploitive. Like you realize that her first one, she has to do a rape scene in it. And um, throughout the course of this transition, as she's trying to transition her career from being this pop icon to um, an actress, she is a victim of stalking and then these murders start happening around her. At the same time, she starts to really lose her own grip on reality as she starts seeing different versions of herself everywhere. And this movie is so goddamn next level in that it is constantly blurring the lines between what is reality when she's on a film shoot playing multiple characters because she's playing a character in the film that has um, multiple personality disorder. Then she's having dream sequences. Plus, when it really picks up, she gets a note in the mail that seems like it's just from a fan. And at the bottom, it says, I'm keeping up with you every day in your website Mima's uh, Mima's room. And she's like, wait, what? I have a website? And this is 1997. So then she goes out with her friend, she buys a computer, and then she goes to this website that this fan is telling her about. And then she realizes that someone, not her, has been basically writing a daily diary blog. But this is before blogs were a thing. They've just been writing a daily diary, but it's not her. But that said, it's documenting everything that she does. I went to a grocery store today and got food for my beloved fish. Um, and it's documenting everything that she does as if she was actually writing it, even though that she is not writing it. And at that point, she realizes that someone is following her around documenting everything she's doing um, and putting it up on the web. And then it gets into this question of like her online persona versus her reality because the online diary makes her life look a lot more exciting and pop starry than her reality does. Um, thus, we've got this on unreliable narrator who herself has mental issues, but she is in fact being stalked. 
This thing is so goddamn wild. Um, just all different levels of reality and nightmares blended together into one. And Jacob Davidson, after I posted about this on Twitter, I think said it best when he was like, this is the best giallo that never came out of Italy. Right. Um, and it is. I also just think it's animated De Palma. You know, it's... It is. Oh, gosh, yeah. That's the filmmaker. The person who had the biggest influence on is actually Aronofsky ripped off well, ripped off lovingly multiple shots of it, like exactly replicated in Requiem for a Dream and Black Swan. You'll see Black Swan. You can from feel both. it. Yeah, there's a there's a bathtub scene in, Requ- in Requiem, which he just has replicated the exact shot. So, um, but yeah, no, it's it's if you love De Palma, you will love this movie. It's I think it's one of the best anime. Like for a person who's not really into animated films, which I would consider mm-hmm. myself, uh, when I see something like this, this is as good as non animated, you know, genre. It's great. Yeah, no, this one and the ending scene of this, there's this final scene, which I won't blow, but I'll just say, holy shit, the guy directed the hell out of the ending scene. And I've never said that about an anime before. (laughs) Um, But I started watching this one when I realized it was on Shudder, but specifically because my daughter has, she's obsessed with anime, specifically this amazing show called Demon Slayer that she loves. She's actually going as one of the characters um, for Halloween. And so um, I'd been watching a lot of stuff on Crunchyroll with her and then suddenly being like, oh, perfect blue. So this is leading me to one of the other series that I absolutely loved from probably the early 2000s called Serial Experiments Lane. Mm, don't know. Which was another one. It's hard to find, but I own a copy of it, but I haven't seen it in probably 15 years. Um, and it's another one where it is about a person who is su- suffering um, from kind of a, a reality disorder involving an online persona. So I'm really excited to revisit that once. I have just put that out to watch this week. But But Perfect Blue is on Shutter right now. So do not sleep on this while it's there. It's amazing. I agree. It it isn't always the easiest to see streaming. So uh, jump on it. Um, yeah. A couple, I, just a couple quickies. Uh, Black Phone, I did a rewatch because my friend who was visiting hadn't seen it, and I felt exactly the same about it. That it's solid and interesting, but kind of falls short. But it, it reminded me what a great, great year in horror we're having when when that movie will not make my top ten. Like that's gonna, mm-hmm. let's say it's even fifteen, and it's a very quality movie. That's a good sign um, of a year like this. Uh, and you know, there's still some really cool period stuff. I think the '70s period stuff is done really well, and the kid casting is still great. So, still recommend people check it out. Um, one that I just did not work for me is a new one called Gone in the Night, and I guess its festival title was Cal with Winona Ryder. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's an interesting movie. Uh, it basically has this almost the same setup in the first couple minutes as Barbarian, which is um, a couple. Uh, the bad guy from Hush and uh, and Winona Ryder, who have an age gap probably of fifteen or so years between them, like uh, but they're a couple. Um, they pull up, in, which is part of the narrative. You know, they pull up to an Airbnb and there's already two people there, and they don't know what to do, and there's a bit of confusion whether they should stay. And they decide it's like the third movie to do that. Yeah, so. well, and, and inter- yeah, no, just interesting. Same company made Barbarian too, uh, but but you know, diff- very different movies. And where Barbarian's still my favorite of the year so far. Uh, this one it's one of those ones that then the structure of the film becomes uh, basically the uh, Winona's much younger boyfriend ends up like 
disappearing the next morning uh, with the other girl. And so you you go, oh, he ran off with this other girl. So Winona disappointedly and kind of confused leaves and thinks, oh, well, I guess that's what I get for dating this random, you know, younger guy. And eventually she meets Dermot Mulroney, who's really good in it. Um, he's the only one I think is actually really good in it. And he's the guy who owns the Airbnb and is trying to help her figure out you know, what might have happened to him, where he might have gone, because it does seem a little random. So it has a dual narrative where it keeps cutting back and forth between her and him trying to kind of stake out what's going on and then going back to the original event to show you what really happened that day. And I'm not going to go beyond that because it's very much about it all is leading to a very big twist of what's been actually been going on. And it's just for me, I just I found the structure to be uh, far too episodic and kind of plotting. I didn't believe some of the relationships. And then it just, you know, when it got to the end, it was kind of bonkers and kind of fun. I think some people would really dig it. I could see it working better at a festival because of the kind of you're in a captive space, but it's it's now streaming. Um, it's just, you know, hey, sometimes these land, sometimes they don't. Um, mm. But, you know, it had a couple interesting horror things. And if you like kind of bonkers, mad science type stuff, there's some kind of bonkers stuff towards the end of this one. Um, so on that level, people should check it out, decide for themselves. I'm not always right. Okay, Elric, let's go into Speak No Evil. Now, I know that you had covered this one on the show before very briefly. Oh, no, I no, I did it at Sundance. Said- I did it, so I watched it when it was at Sundance, and I, I had an online Sundance pass this year, so it was all the way back then that I watched it. That Okay, so that was a while ago, yeah. so I'm going to dive back into this. Mm-hmm. So this is Speak No Evil, which came to Shudder this week. And so all I had heard was kind of the hype off Sundance was um, the premise, which is it's two families – one is Dutch and one is Danish. And they meet at this kind of like wine cooking weekend in Italy. And the two families totally hit it off. And then they go back to their respective countries. And uh, all of a sudden, the Danish family gets a postcard from the Dutch family that says, hey, you know, it was really cool hanging with you. We had a lot of fun. Why don't you come visit us for the weekend um, and, and come to this country and we can go hang out for the, you know, a couple of days. And so the Danish family says, okay, you know what? Why don't we do that? And so they get together at the Dutch family's house. It's like an eight-hour drive. And then um, that's kind of where the movie picks up. So that's all within like the first 15 minutes. Once they get there, this movie is not a horror movie until it is like screaming at you with its horror. So it definitely goes horror. But for the bulk of the movie... You are looking at what you think are just really awkward, uncomfortable cultural differences. And it starts kind of like it's, it seems like, um, the Dutch family just is a little different culturally or a little different kind of in how they do things than the Danish family. And so you kind of look at it more as like cultural beliefs. Um, and it's things like the Dutch family seems to be a bit more direct and curt. Um, they keep forgetting that the Danish wife is vegetarian. Um, and then it starts uh, progressing into kind of like different styles of parenting. Um, and some of it is an absolute outright comedy. Like there's one scene where um, one of the, the characters is in the shower and somebody else just comes in and starts brushing their teeth. And it becomes very much like is this like a cultural thing or are these people just weird? And so um, this movie has a punch like none other at the end to the point that it turns into one of the bleakest films I think I will see this year. 
And it's so gradual. I have to applaud it in kind of how gradual it is because through the bulk of the movie, you feel like you're watching like this international episode of like Curb Your Enthusiasm, where it's just very much like Larry David. And it's just kind of this comedy of manners of, wait, were you? Oh, I'm so sorry. I thought you meant, nope, nope. Okay, okay. And it's just this very awkward politeness. Um, but then it gets creepy and it keeps getting creepier, but it's so gradual that it's really hard to see when things start turning and when it starts getting creepier. Um, this one, it left me completely uncomfortable and then just my jaw dropped at the end um, to the point where the final 15 minutes pissed me off so bad I had to get online and bitch to people last night because I was so enraged by the last 15 minutes. Which is, per- you know, that's the interesting. And when she says enraged, I, I, it's like, it's purposeful. Like it's, like yes. they want you to feel exactly as you did. So it's not like, a mis- it's uh, funny games is probably the closest comparison, but funny games is mannered and never real. Like what you're watching is because they rewind and they do all sorts of artificial things in funny games in this movie. It, well, the important thing isn't just that they're couples, they're couples with children. And that's the, mm-hmm. that's what sets it apart. Because if it's just couple, I mean, my, my, my takeaway usually is like, don't make friends on holiday. Like, you don't need friends. Yeah. You're there with your family. You don't need any <laughs> friends. Don't need to know any other adults. Um, but when you have kids, that's even more of the case because, uh, who knows if you can trust these people and it gets really fucking crazy. Yeah. I think it's good not to say too much because it is such a, uh, I start totally blind too at Sundance and it's quite funny. A lot of it's quite. Oh funny. my gosh. Yeah. yeah. There was so much of it that I could. And it was an uncomfortable funny, but I could compare it to like a Curb Your Enthusiasm where it's just this like uncomfortable awkwardness of no one really understanding the situation, but trying to be as polite as possible um, to figure out what the best way out of it is, but no one's doing it properly. Um, And then it turns into this element of passivity of like, well, could you have done anything? Should you be doing anything? Is this person really creepy? Or are you just being paranoid while they're trying to be overly nice? Um, And it goes there. And it's such a subtle twist. This was, I would not recommend this film to everybody because it was slow burn to the point where I was like, I thought they said this was a horror movie. Why is this on shutter up to like the 55 minute mark? And then I was like, oh, fuck. Okay. Okay. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. It was a bleak one, but it was one that I was so angry at that I was I went to bed pissed off at this movie. So it definitely had an impact. Yeah, it goes all the way. If you're into those mm-hmm. kind of movies, like the people who are like it's the kind of movie that if somebody was calling it a masterpiece, they're not wrong. It's a masterpiece yeah. of what it does. I just don't want to see it ever again. Oh my god, no, no. <laughs> this was good. It makes at you feel what like it shit. Did. Yeah, it's you because bad. it did send me to bed. So I pissed off not at the film, at the characters. Yeah. Like I was so pissed by the time I went to bed um, and thinking about how I would have handled the situation and, and, you know, is that a cultural thing or is it just a human thing? And oh, Well, there's God. probably also, a lot, I mean, the, the fun thing about um, the kind of the subtle part of the film would be that would probably be a bit over our heads here is like the difference between those two countries. They're right next to each other, but they probably have completely different you know, types of people from both countries. I think one is Holland and the other is Denmark, right? So, yeah. uh, and and just the subtle differences in like with the, the, the people from Holland were the more extroverted and the Den- Danish family were more introverted and quieter and, and, and just little things like that, that it builds upon that probably in that part of the world plays even better, um, yeah. which I think is interesting. But yeah, it's a very interesting movie. Um, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's at the top of some lists at the end of the year. But again, I would definitely see it on there. And I would say it's one that I could see myself turning on because it's one of those that I don't know if I will ever watch again. But it did have such an impact on me last night where I was so pissed off at it that it 
it affected me more than I think a lot of other films have this year. Um, Speak No Evil just came out on Shudder, and I have been seeing just as many people on Twitter just as pissed off as I was. So, um, yeah. Plus the kids. The kids were so well-behaved. Like, they knew something was going on, too, and they were so well-behaved. I don't think my kids would have kept their cool. Yeah, well, that's good. Uh, They would have have fought back quicker. Um, All right, the next one, file under a Becca-type movie. Uh, That is the big... uh, the big uh it was a big release this year in the theaters i think it's just finished in theaters and that is beast starring idris elba with uh Mm -hmm. a very angry lion who is like a serial killing lion who is upset because there's all this poaching in the area so this is actually pretty fun it's it's a very average movie overall but it is pretty fun idris elba and his two kids are going down to south africa to uh hunt with that awesome south african actor whose name i always love to try to say shalto copley Charlton Copley. Yeah, Copley. Uh, anyway, he's uh, he's their old friend and a hunter, and they had um, Idris's uh, wife in common. They, it was a, high, you know, a college friend of Charlton's, and for Idris, uh, he had just recently separated from her before she passed away, uh, very young, and so he's trying to make up with his kids and trying to it's a good character for him to play it's a little complicated and gives it a little bit of uh, meat on the bones as it were as they get down there um well done exactly uh what's cool about this film is it's utterly beautiful because of where it's set you know in south africa you get some really nice uh, geographical uh, photography and what one of the pluses of the film i also found a bit to be a minus overall which is as directors you know when you make a decision that you're going to go for a certain style for the whole movie how that can really Mm -hmm. hem you in at times and so the choice on this movie is for everything to be a long take like every single shot has i don't you know they they change in their length but basically everything is holding wide for an entire you know sometimes it could be a few minutes sometimes 10 minutes sometimes a little shorter but everything is in that format and a lot of moving camera and so it's really cool in some ways but when one actor is not quite like one of the kids isn't quite as good as the others you're in the same frame so you can't cut and so there's some limitations to that i think uh, that are and, and and pacing sometimes can be a little off because of that um but overall this is actually a pretty fun movie the effects are pretty good uh they are basically having to stalk this line because the line has been you know stalking them and other poachers they get trapped their car breaks down and uh charlotte is the one who has kind of the experience but he gets like, injured pretty quickly and it's got a, it's got some pretty good tension. It's one of those movies that never rises above. But as far as like recent animal attack movies, it's actually pretty good. And and it's got a few really good sequences, a couple good scares, some good stunts and stuff. So you know, I I half recommend Beast. Did you see it? I did not see this, but the trailer. This lion looks incredible. Yeah, like it, looked it looked so. I mean, I I've seen my fair share of bad CG lions, and that was my takeaway from the trailer was that the lion looked really good. It's hard to do a movie like this after you've watched Roar. Once you've seen <laughs> Roar and it's like all these real lions attacking real people, it's kind of like, okay, well, you know, that's the pinnacle of animal attacks movies. But um, no, this is, it, it's a good fun one. Now that it's streaming or whatever, uh, I think people will probably get a kick out of it. I think my expectations were better to watch this one at home. I think I would have been a little mm-hmm. underwhelmed in the theater. Uh, Ghost in the Darkness is one that I quite liked from um, back in the day. I really yeah. liked that movie. Yeah. Or Michael Douglas one. That was a good one back mm-hmm. in the day. Um, but anyway, so I, I, this one feels like something you're going to enjoy uh, a lot, I think. Well, I just added it to my Amazon queue while you said that. So um, I will definitely check it out. So the other one that I'm excited to check out that I haven't yet is The Invitation, which kind of looks vampire-y, gothic-y, but in a contemporary sense. Um, so Isn't it meant that, to be I just kind added of that. Um, like uh, Twilight-y or, or is that just more like a YA kind of vibe maybe? 
It's YA vibe and it does look real Twilighty. Okay. Um, I'll let yeah, you go there so, first. You you watch it. I'm I know. You should watch it. It looks it looks like something that 16 year old me, even younger, 13 year old me, would have gotten really into. So mm-hmm. I've just added it to my queue this afternoon. I watched the trailer and I was like, I feel like I should watch this. It seemed like something my daughter might enjoy as okay. well. Like it had this romantical teen, you know, sexy teen quality to it. Um, so continuing on with, oh, I will say I've only got two things one, left, yeah. and both of them are going to be quick. Um, so I did watch Silent Running. Mm-hmm. I'll put it at the end because I can't say it's a true horror film straight up sci-fi yeah it's dystopia I had a blast with this film I don't really know um if it's got like you know it's it's definitely got cult legs this is from 1972 it's this major environmental theme like dystopian film um it was the directorial debut of Douglas Trumbill yeah and the big thing that I love about this is it is um, they're floating in space because we've destroyed the world. So there's all of these like greenhouses floating in space. And then somewhere they're like, well, why do we even need the greenhouses anymore when we synthetically create all of our food and we synthetically create oxygen? And so um, the government makes the decision to start blowing up the, the greenhouses that they have floating in space. But Bruce Dern, Bruce Dern loves those greenhouses more than anything and the bunnies that live in. That's the only animal you see basically is bunnies and one hawk. Um, so he starts killing people on the space stations to try to preserve the um, greenhouses. It's amusing. Um, And most of it is, yeah, he's really good. Most of it's Bruce Dern by himself. So I won't say much about that one since it's kind of more adjacent, but Silent Running, um, it is a fancy Arrow release and it was definitely worth the the cost of the Blu-ray to see it. And I will also say, um, since we've had him on the show and I'm a huge fan, Colin Bunn, has just last year um, made a foray into adolescent graphic novels as well with The Ghoul Next Door. I got this for my kids and I grabbed it over the weekend and I absolutely love it. I read the entire thing in one day. And it's about a young boy who gets kind of obsessed with his local graveyard. And one day while he is there, he meets a ghoul, which is like very, it's a ghoul in the very traditional sense. It is a underground creature who eats dead bodies. Like they, that's what they subsist on is the bones of the dead. And, um, and he meets their entire civilization. He becomes really good friends with her. And it made me think, we just never see ghouls. Like ghouls in the very kind of traditional classic sense of what a ghoul is. This underground subterranean creature that eats the dead. And it's such a fun little adolescent take that actually goes there. There were a couple of moments where I was like, wow, I can't believe that she's actually talking about eating dead people. But she does. Um, so yeah, that was Ghoul Next Door. Just really fun if you're looking for something for like a 9 or 10 year old that is like really into scary stuff. This is a good one. And I think they have a second one out now as well. Okay. Interesting. My last one is um, the one I enjoyed the most this week. Uh, But on paper, I should be running and screaming the other way on paper. This is not an Elric movie. And in the darkness of my room, watching it alone, Elric likes this one very much. That is from a couple. You you need to stop talking about yourself in third well, you know, third person is, before you get this here. This is this is it's, it relates to the movie, I think, because the character is constantly doing this. Uh, this, oh, is, this is by okay. I was being clever. This is by a couple of listeners apparently, and you have reviewed this before. Oh, yes, Joseph yes. and Vanessa uh, Winter, and a movie called Deadstream. 
And I loved this movie. Yeah, so on paper, uh, a disgraced YouTuber strike uh, decides to put on, his, uh, has to try to kind of reinvent himself to win back his audience. So decides to go stream live from a haunted house strike. Okay, so now I should not be watching this movie at this point because two things that will definitely not be for me. Uh, and then you keep watching and he gets into the house. So the setup is kind of like, you know, pretty obvious. And he gets in the house and then it goes basically into more of like a Sam Raimi Evil Dead movie. And it gets so bonkers and wild and funny and self-depreciating uh and you know for a found footage film that i had a lot of fun the practical effects are a real gas and it just keeps moving and it keeps having surprise after surprise and by the end of the thing i was kind of smiling for the whole uh, last 30 minutes as this guy is going through the ringer uh with creatures and stuff so i think the people are gonna this is gonna the reason i watched it now was because it's about to hit uh beyond fest next week and then it's gonna be very mm-hmm. soon after that hitting shutter this is gonna be a, a really fun halloween treat for people once uh, on shutter so i wanted to give it a plug for sure uh i love watching this and host were two i watched like alone in a dark room on a laptop and that might be the best type of movie for me watching it like that because i get a little creeped out with found footage if i'm by myself you know in a theater less so for me so yeah good job guys uh really a fun movie no this one i this one i think they sent me a screening link mm-hmm. i'm pretty sure um that they had emailed me a screening link like way like months ago um before it started its festival run and i was just floored by it because this was one that i watched i i had clicked on it and it was probably like two o'clock on some idle wednesday when i was like yeah fine whatever i'll watch it and then just howling just thought it was hilarious and it just lit up my entire day especially the first scare because it's i mean there's little scares because he's you know looking for ghosts but the first thing that happens that's genuinely like oh shit when it happens i actually kind of like moved back for a second because i just didn't expect it anymore from uh how it played out with the character but uh uh yeah very fun movie so look out for dead stream coming to shutter soon i think as well oh yeah um, yeah. So uh, before we get into the next segment, which we hope uh, becomes a, a segment we could repeat for different time periods, I will say a really cool shout out from Collider. We haven't talked about this yet. Uh, Collider uh, this weekend put us in the top 20 film and movie podcast, which was really cool. A really Wait, cool what? Yeah, I, posted, I haven't even seen that. Uh, if Is you it looked online? at our Twitter, you would see it on the Colors of the Dark Twitter I posted on Sunday. Uh, Yeah, no, it was really some good company in there. I had a bonkers weekend. You know that. I literally had family in town. I had a filling fallout. Anyway, the reason it made me happy is because I don't, we don't always talk about these kind of things, but because usually those lists, usually the kind of lists uh, we end up on, just like horror films, are on a horror list. This was just movie podcast and we made it on. So that was very cool. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Collider. Thank you, Collider. Uh, But the reason I bring it up here is because often Often, horror films are not talked about at that most important time, which is the Oscars. Now, it's great that we mm-hmm. have Fangoria Chainsaw Awards. It's great that we have that. But that is not the same because horror is still being snubbed by the mainstream. Now, in the 90s, which is the decade we are going to attack, uh, there actually is a, a handful of horror films that actually got pretty good. The ones that did get like like seen got actually quite a lot of accolades, uh, but your average horror film did not. So something I, I threw to you as a crazy idea is that instead of doing like a, a year of uh, Oscars, I said, when we do it, we do all the main categories of the Oscars uh, in this more or less that kind of order, but we do it per decade. So only, yes. so we're all over the place. Any horror film is game that was made and you decided you wanted to start with the 90s anything from 1990 to 99 is game to be nominated or win 
our Oscars. And these aren't being tailored for horror films. It's not like we're going, we're best kill. This is the, the, the actual no, legit Oscars. No, these are Oscars. actual Oscars. Yeah. And the reason that I wanted to start with the 90s is because the 90s are are widely viewed as like this this blight on horror. Like, you know, the 80s, if, you know, the 80s were the silver age of horror, you know, if you say the 30s were the golden age, the 80s were the silver age, and then what the fuck happened in the 90s? But um, that was when I was coming of age. And so for me, the 90s, I mean, that was everything in horror. And so I really wanted to start with this because I thought it would be fun to look at, you know, how what we can champion from this decade, like what was amazing during the 90s. So if this works... We're going to do these for all the decades. For sure, but again, all the ones we've been doing top tens for. Yeah. 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 And so we are going to go through. So any horror film, as long as it was released during the 90s, was fair game. And you have to put, you know, your major uh, Academy Award categories. And Elric did create one more rule. This is a big asterisk, if, yes. Yeah. If the horror film had actually won in that category. Or been it nominated. Or been nominated. So it is not eligible. The most obvious, we did yeah. have, yeah, like three or four. Um, and I'll say like the most obvious, Kathy Bates was nominated for Best Actress for Misery. Um, did not, did she win? Uh, she, she did. She, she actually won. She so did win. That's a big um, deal. Yeah. And, so that's that's a no. We can't use that one. And sadly, the biggest one, because I'd written in for like three categories until I totally was like, oh, yeah, of course, I got nominated for all of these, is Bram Stoker's Dracula, like, cleaned house, yep. at, at least in nominations for things like uh, costume and effects and stuff. So. So oh, yeah. fortunately, some of these like uh, biggies, we, we, they might get mentioned somewhere else. If it's if it's a different category, you can. But yeah, um, I may have filled it into a different category. But yes, uh, and for you know this this first time might be rougher. We we'll perfect it later. I I kind of said for some of the bigger awards, less maybe less of the smaller ones, we could have multiple. Uh, you know, you could have a couple runners up and then announce your winner. Whatever you want to do. On some of them, I just know straight away one one person one title's winning. Uh, some of them I pulled the name of the actual person for some of the technical. Some I couldn't find it as easily. So we'll, we'll be all over the map. But the main thing is horror will win. There will be Oscars tonight. And the Every red carpet category. is going to be redder so, than normal. Um, I, I was just going to have disturbing behavior sweep all categories. I felt it. But um, okay. So since, uh, yeah, I, I decided I might not do that, I guess we should just jump in. Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Athletic Greens and their nutrition drink, AG1, a product that Elric and I have been taking every day. After months of being in quarantine, Elric and I both wanted to improve our health in the new year. So we decided to try Athletic Greens. It's a health supplement that actually tastes great and really boosts your energy. Plus, it's from New Zealand, which Elric loves. So what is AG1? Uh, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, all those things. I started taking mine daily right before my breakfast um, and before I started in with the coffee. So it became this thing that I was looking forward to as soon as I got up in the morning. It lets me know that I'm getting the nutrients I need. And after trying to sh- choke down an assortment of homemade kale and quinoa smoothies I was making, I got to say the taste of this is great. It's got this wonderful lemon flavor. And it's lifestyle friendly, whether you are keto, vegan, dairy-free, paleo, or gluten-free. As you guys know, I have 
crazy food allergies, and it is free from all of the eight major allergens, which I was really impressed with. AG1, it's a small micro habit with big benefits, and it costs less than $3 a day, so way cheaper than the cold brew habit. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. I take it like 30 minutes before coffee, and it actually has given me a little boost of energy, which has been great. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash C-O-T-D. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash C-O-T-D to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Uh, yeah, let's jump in. I had an order that I, I pulled from some Oscar thing. I'm not sure. I don't think it's the exact. No, it's not the order. The Oscars usually go on. That's too complicated. But uh, we are going to be starting to begin the Oscar for best sound in a horror best film sound. of the 1990s. So I will kick us off with my horror film for best sound in the 1990s. And the award goes to Vincenzo's Natalie's Cube. Ah, interesting. Because this for me was all about sound because the entire landscape that you are creating has no natural sound to it. So they have to create everything from the ground up. Um, and they are, and I mean, it's down to like tiny details of like, you know, what do the doors sound like? What does the floor sound like? What do the kills, like all of the different triggers in the room sound like? Down to, um, if you're in a cube, what type of echo does your voice have? And I always thought it was really cool, some of the things that they did and that they were kind of having to fictionalize this environment and all of the sounds therein. Nice. Excellent choice uh best sound for me goes to a the movie that i'm only going to give it this award because it's only kind of horror and it would have won every award if it was up to elric uh so it's disturbing behavior isn't it no uh best sound and it's the movie that i always use as a sound example with students and it's just i think it's pure genius and that is lost highway lost highway oh good choice the mystery man scene where he comes and gives the guy the phone and the pocket of silence that surrounds them is one of the most i've ever noticed sound in a good way not in a oh i noticed it's bad uh it's just the soundtrack design the the way it's all integrated together uh lynch i couldn't actually highlight whoever the sound designer was because there was like 10 people listed including lynch so uh but lost highway would have won director cinematographer everything for me so i'm only going to put it in sound give it uh, because it's not as traditional horror film um but it is horrifying and it is a work of art so best sound lost highway okay okay are you ready for another technical award you may go first with this one okay. for the technical award of best editing. Best editing, have? yeah, the most one of the most important things, the things that give movies flight. Uh, I had a couple that were battling it out. I'm going to give my runners up. Uh, I'll give one runner up because in case the other one's your winner, my runner up is Bob Murawski for Army of Darkness, which is mm-hmm. you know a lot of crazy work, obviously because of the skeletons and the Harryhausen stuff, and it's just a bonkers fun movie. But there's only one film better than Army of Darkness, and that comes from my hometown, and that is Dead Alive. The editing of Dead Alive by Jamie Selkirk is amazing. It has like just some of the gore sequences with the lawnmower, the the amount of blood and uh, like just the style of this movie, I just think is so wild. And I don't think the editor probably gets mentioned enough where Peter Jackson gets most of the credit. So I wanted to make sure Dead Alive was on people's uh, radar here. 
So for me, editing, it's just as much about cutting as it is not cutting Mm -hmm. and knowing how long to hold the shots before you do cut for the biggest impact. So for me, I picked audition Um, because that movie is all about endurance and endurance is built out of editing. Tension is crafted out of editing. And for me, so much of that movie is holding the shot knowing when to cut it, how long you let her go with the T-T-T-T-T before you switch to a different angle and all of it. Like that is such a cleverly done scene. And it is so clever because of the pace and the style at which it is cut. Excellent. Yes. Uh, Bellatar is a great director. He made a film that would have like 10 edits in it. And that was exactly what he would say is like, it's what, when don't you edit is the important part. So well done. Um, Okay. Our Oscar for best visual effects. Okay, so this was a tough one for me because a couple of the ones that I was immediately like, oh, this one, I would immediately find out it was nominated. Um, So this one that I have picked, I don't believe was nominated. And I have given my Oscar for Best Visual Effects to Jacob's Ladder. Uh, I I predicted you were going to do Jacob's Ladder for uh, the editing, actually, funnily enough. It's a great movie. It it is. No, this movie, um, the visual effects are what fucked my shit up. Um, When I first saw this, I was way too young to be watching this. I remember my parents wanted to watch it because it was about Vietnam. And I remember watching this as a family. And it was doing things that I had never seen in a movie before. It was doing the twitchy stuff yeah. that like we later come to know as like the way that Samara moves or you know what you see in the remake of House on Haunted mm-hmm. Hill. But at this time, I had never seen that. I mean, it's as simple as dropping like every third frame will give you that effect. But this for me like blew my fucking mind. The guy with no eyeballs, with the syringe, like just some of um, the visual effects and even the ones that are executed in camera. Um, like the, the stuff that they're doing with the tail and how it's moving so fast and the camera's moving as well and how you can barely make it out. And so much of it is like the way that the subway is moving and it looks like everybody's face is fucked up. But is that just in camera? Is that just the speed of the train or is everybody's face fucked up? There was just so much happening in this movie that just destroyed my brain. And I know that this did not commercially do well when it first came out, but I have found myself referencing this as a comp more times than I can even mention. Like the amount of influence that this had on my work to come has been massive. Yeah, true psychological horror. Um, well, the one I'd love to have gone would be Bram Stoker's here. I didn't uh, directly because he, him and his son did the effects together and they're all, they went back to old school things from the 20s. So every effect they decided that they would use would have to have something from the 1920s and in camera almost all of it. So it's, so I have a lot of respect for those effects. If you ever get to look them up, they're really cool. But I am going for a movie that I absolutely love, especially when it came out. No one's probably ever heard me talk about my love for this movie. And here's the clue. Ah, 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 ah. Mars Attacks is the coolest <laughs> freaking movie. Jim Mitchell, uh, animation supervisor, says, and I, Industrial Light and Magic. Uh, this is a movie when I first saw it, I was laughing, howling through the movie. It was like a much lighter Tim Burton movie. Uh, very satirical, obviously. It's like The Arrival, but bonkers and mm-hmm. when the when the aliens turned on everyone i just thought it was the greatest thing ever when the mayhem starts to ensue and i just love the way their brains look so i know it's a big visual effect and totally goofy but i like mars attack so there you go 
You know, you just mentioned Bram Stoker's Dracula again. Did that get nominated in the actual Academy Awards for editing? Because I actually show scenes from that in my class when I teach editing. That I don't know. It it looked like it was mostly production design, effects, costumes. I think it won. Um, Its costumes are actually at the Academy Museum, and they're really cool to look at. Um, But yeah, so I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up. But it definitely got a few nominations. Surprise, you know. Okay. In a way, surprisingly, I mean Coppola isn't a horror director so that's probably why it transcended in some ways mm-hmm. um but it, it still holds up i think it's a great movie um okay here's a biggie for horror people because this is like one of the ones we it's always a little weird because it's best makeup and hair <laughs> which mm-hmm. uh, you know which you could go either way it could be a jane austen thing for hair or it could be uh bonkers uh you know creature design so uh where did you go with best makeup and hair well i have my runner up and then i have my winner so my runner up was Night Flyer because uh, yeah, I feel like call. that is such a distinctive makeup yeah. choice. And this also gets into like how you classify because best makeup and hair would technically be like more of beauty or standard makeup, whereas that would fall under makeup effects. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Well, Rick so Baker's won it before. Of, so yeah. So they didn't separate it until much later. Yeah. So I'm just kind of classifying them together here. But the one that I, I selected as my best, we'll call it special effects makeup and general makeup, Nightbreed. Uh, um, my Oscar goes to Nightbreed. Oh, hell yes, uh, it does. Coolier. I wrote the name. I, I, I love this movie. And I know some people didn't like the original cut and the direct. I love the original cut. I'm sure I love the director's cut too, but I have always loved this movie. So, and the creature design there, is sick. There is not a creature in this movie that I am not completely captivated mm-hmm. by, that I do not want to be like, how did you make the perp- porcupine guy yeah, or girl? Yeah. How, how did you make um, the guy who's slicing his face off? How did you make moon face? Like, they're all just so captivating to look at, even down to just, you know, the woman who turns into smoke. Like, she does not have any, like, she's not as monstrous as the rest of them per se, but she still is just so stark. Even Boone after he goes oh, monstrous. Yeah. Imagine like, the, a just... clip of this playing at the Oscars. That would have been so badass. If a clip oh of this, God, while yeah. everyone's just sitting in the chair, no one will have seen this movie. They'd be like, what the fuck is this thing? Uh, but it is. It's, it's, and David and Cronenberg. Decker's mask. Yeah, Cronenberg yeah. would be just hanging out. Um, but yeah, no, this movie deserves something, and this is a great a great one for it so okay mm-hmm. good we find we got we tied on one i love it we tied one uh, okay biggie uh, uh best costume design so this was a wild one for me um but i ended up going with from dusk till dawn oh cool um like just because i feel like this took such big swings with how it did do the costuming because you are dealing with so many different like walks of life and i feel like especially when it comes to like how they portray the actual dancers at the titty twister there would have been this very kind of stereotypical um kind of i'll say like rednecky strip club way to go with it and the fact that they refined it into what selma hayek is wearing which is like some next level like burlesque beaded snake yeah like monstrosity like there was so much of this movie that i just think that the characters were made by the costume um and not just because tom savini's costume includes a penis 
gun. Oh yeah, that, um, that part's really I feel, cool. yeah, sex machine. Yeah, I feel sex machine. I feel like there's just so much of the characterization that is um accentuated by the costuming in this movie. Yeah, so this one was hard because the first two I would have written down were Bram Stoker's Dracula, which definitely got nominated, mm-hmm. and the second, which I think is just incredible and a lot of production levels, is Sleepy Hollow. But that also got I have a that one coming up. Yeah, yeah, that got a nomination, and, and it's a wonderful movie. Uh, so I actually did go with uh, one of my runner-ups from earlier, and I'm giving it to Army of Darkness just because oh, of all that medieval call. stuff, and then all of yep. Ash's costume becomes so iconic in that film. I think the the use of the gun strapped to the back and the 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 hand and everything. So and, and the cool S uniforms at the end it's just a fun and uh, the costume designer her name was ida gira so and when i can remember nice. i'll throw it in um okay this is always a biggie i don't know i have a feeling we're gonna have the same one i hope put best production design okay so this is one where i had originally put sleepy hollow down yeah um because it's tim burton like yeah. production design is everything and then i realized that it was nominated for production design um actually i think it won it, this it, won it, for it definitely got something design. it was yeah, yeah it, it's the design of this movie and like while we're here let's just give it a bit of love this movie might be the best movie to put on at the start of the halloween season like october oh 1st gosh, yeah. you want to set the tone every time i rewatch this i'm struck by just it's really the great last last great tim burton film in my opinion it's so mm-hmm. good Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, and so then I really started thinking about what production design entails. Like technically the production designer, they're controlling any of the looks on screen. So it's not even just, you know, the, the stuff, the set, the, the furniture, the wallpaper, things like that. Like even sometimes special effects, like how the actual effects will look, how the monsters will look is sometimes included under production design. And so then I specifically started thinking even bigger, about the overall look of the film and how the practical effects are married to the actual design of everything and how it fits together and then how it all comes together visually. Um, so this is a weird one to pick for this, but goddamn, I will never forget the production design of it. And that's Event Horizon. Oh, we're close. We're close okay. because mine, I'll say mine and then you talk about yours. My best okay. production design is in the mouth of madness. Oh, damn. And, and everything you just said, oh, yeah. everything you just said leading up to it, applies to that movie because it's tapped into the practical effects all the different designs yeah. so i thought that's where you're going but both are sam neill movies so take it away both are sam neill so for me it's event horizon like if you are creating some type of motor that is piloting a ship into a black hole how that thing is crafted out and how it looks on screen like that is so distinctive how it's these folds of metal with the rivets and it feels otherworldly but at the same time it feels like barbed wire and barbed wire we see it play in a lot of these scenes like it was just such a stylized movie i mean they're in space they could have gone with anything it could have looked plasticky it could have looked otherworldly it could have been ribbons of cosmos instead it's very much like we are using metal and we are making metal the theme additionally there is an infusion of religious imagery throughout the entire film it feels like it's just in every bit of the production design like most of the windows on the spaceship look like crosses um there's the scene where the guy is floating backwards towards one in like full jesus pose and there's just all of this religious imagery that comes into it and so for me that is one so much so that when i've seen redesigned posters of it they actually create sam neill's face out of that same texture that the motor that is piloting the ship is made out of like that's good production design if you can literally create something out of just a texture and then everybody goes oh it's the motor um that that's 
really distinctive production. No, that's a, yeah, that's actually a great choice. And and Sam Neill is having a great decade with those and uh, Jurassic Park movies too. Jurassic. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, In the Mouth of Madness, for all the same reasons you're saying, again, it's the creativity of going from, like it, when it opens, it's in almost that when Vancouver doesn't even look like Vancouver, fake Americana, like, you know, uh, books, book, book markets and cafes and stuff. And then mm-hmm. as it goes, it gets increasingly more surreal. You have, you know, some of the exciting parts at Hobbs End, obviously. Uh, and then other parts where it's literally Literally, as you said, built into the effects that are about to happen. They built the location and the set. So I did want to, uh, the production designer is Jeff Ginn and the art direction is Peter Grundy. I don't know who's doing what on this, but it's 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 really a magical film. And that's one of the things you always walk away thinking about. Definitely. Biggie coming. Okay. Very big one. So that, this is a huge one. Um, and I definitely went with a, a left field choice for this. Um, so best cinematography. I did some runners up too. Uh, I, I have a runners up. Yeah. Definitely. My, mine's very, my, this is definitely one of those categories where I, I will go obscure. Uh, I, well, we've recently talked a bit about the relic, which I am a big fan of. And a lot of people complain about the cinematography of that film being too dark. Those people have not seen it in a theater because in a theater it is, perfect uh Mm -hmm. and that is actually uh dp'd by the director peter himes uh my other runner-up a film that no one really talks about anymore but uh the ninth gate i think the cinematography of that film so cool yeah that's darius kanji who shot seven so you know it's a beautiful very dark movie uh my my winner is for a movie that no one will be putting on many of these lists but i think the way it looks is magic and that is the reflecting skin um oh my gosh shot, yeah shot that is bill a pope. great choice yeah. great great choice. dp bill pope um working with a you know relatively new director and this is just you know it's like it's out malicking malik you know and, and for a horror film that's really interesting because it's all pastoral and and it makes the sunshine the horrific element uh to mm-hmm. this world it's a beautiful looking movie and i wanted to make sure i, I fit it in somewhere um, so mine, like I said, is total left field swing. And there are going to be people like, seriously, you put this on your damn, you know, best cinematography list, but it's just one movie that I have always loved the way that it looked. And this is Demon Knight. Um, yeah, no, that's I love, yeah. I love the cinematography for Demon Knight and this movie. I mean, it was very polarized when it came out. Um, I was looking up today and it did not. What? Get polarizing is the greatest thing ever when it came. I love it. What, for us, yeah. I mean, what were we like 14, 13 yeah. at the time? Yeah, it was fucking brilliant. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when this came out, it was just not well received. Mm. And I had always thought that the cinematography for this was so great. So much so that I went back and rewatched the trailer today because I was like, why am I, I? I remember it being so cool. And it is. It's shot very Bava, um, where it is this blue light glowing demon eyes, a lot of haze, and then it's all backlighting. Yeah. And so you're seeing all these demons with backlighting and then these kind of general washed out features with these glowing eyes. And then so much of it, it's just this blue light with canted angle. It almost feels black and white in some of the scenes. Um, and it's at the same time, it's this like electric shade of blue. Like it almost feels neon because the eyes of the demons are glowing this green. Um, and and then it's got this electric blue light. So the cinematography, the guy's a legend. It's done by Rick Boda, who had done a lot of the original Tales from the Crypt um, TV show. He'd done a couple of episodes of that going in like 25 episodes, I believe. Um, 
DP him so he knew what he was doing going in. Um, he also did the new the remake of House on Haunted Hill from 1999. Um, he's gone on to mostly work in television, but he still is very much a working DP. But yeah, he's just had a lifelong career. Um, started out on the one of the lesser known TV shows of the 1980s that I know we've talked about. I think on Killer POV, Werewolf. Yeah, um, yeah. was his first job as DP, and uh, yeah, I just always loved the Demon Knight look. And that is something that is so crucial is setting looks. Um, what Rick Boda probably became most known for was directing three of the later Hellraiser sequels. He did Hellworld, Debtor, and Hellseeker. We're not going to hold any of that against him yeah. because he made Demon Knight look fucking amazing. Well, And the director of Demon Knight is Ernest Dickerson, who is also famous for being Spike Lee's DP, uh, yeah. to do the right thing. And so I, I, I always saw it because Ernest Dickerson shot that, um, what was the movie? I just saw it for the first time last year and it's kind of like um a succubus uh it was like a, a story oh, oh it, was, um, it was a black horror oh, film gosh. that had gone l- largely under the radar in yeah. the 90s but but that looks quite like this i can't remember the name of it but yes. yeah so i think ernest i, I think he's a little he's def- his hand is also there for sure um which yeah. is great <clears throat> okay now we are at best original score um I'm curious. I'll let you go first because wait did you give us your dp oh yeah yeah mine was bill pope I- for reflecting skin Oh, thank you. Sorry, I was writing these down and I missed that one. Okay, cool. Best original score. This was a tough one for me. It was only tough because it seems to me so obvious that I struggled to go away from the obvious, but... I, I had a couple that were contenders for this, but then um, I know which way you're going to go, and I think I'm going to kick slightly different okay. um, because I'm going to say Ravenous. Well, Ravenous was my runner-up because Damon Albarn, okay. totally original, bizarro soundtrack, you know? Wild, yeah. I love the Ravenous soundtrack. It feels exactly like you would not expect coming out of yeah. that movie, and somehow it fits it perfectly. Um, movie set in the 1800s, Spanish, uh, yeah, Spanish Mexican. War. Yeah, war, yeah. Yeah, um, and yeah, I think that was 1800s. So it is like a period piece, but it's got this bonkers score that calls a lot of attention to itself, but at the same time, the score elevates the movie like even though it does not seem to fit the period it it carries it i like to call um, it techno so yeah. hillbilly techno hillbilly oh that's a good <laughs> it's, got, it's got the uh, yeah. banjo but then it'll have like this like you know like because he you know it's by damon albarn who was blur <laughs> uh and and uh what's that My, no the gorillas and things like that so it's it was yeah. very unusual but I, I sometimes wonder if that the score was part of the reason the movie at its first inception wasn't popular like the score pushes it in such an odd direction but i think it helps make it so memorable like because it's so weird you know it's you know i also there was a lot that i think was kicking against this movie when it came out in 1999 that it is this kind of western neo cannibal film um that it does you know it is set in i just looked it up 1840s california um so it is a a kind of period piece at a time when we weren't doing period pieces and at the same time it's very much like a combination of like the Donner Party mythos mixed with a um, Windigo mythos. And none of those were really popular in the 90s. Like, And it's subtle about it. It's yeah. real subtle about all of it. It just does not feel like a 90s film, but somehow it's brilliant in that. And the soundtrack feels really 90s. Yeah. Like it does have this like psychobilly feel yeah, to it. Yeah, no, it's cool. Um, um, yeah. I, I had a feeling that would come up somewhere here. So with you. Uh, yeah. uh, okay, so yes, uh, I think the next, the soundtrack for me is, which is one of the great scores by a non-horror composer that's for sure uh philip glass candy man 
is what the very definition when somebody says yeah. mesmerizing, it is pulling you in and romantic and really adds probably a massive element to the success of that movie. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, that brings us to the next one, which was easily the hardest and the one I re- I probably would have taken off because I didn't even really know how to do it. Oh my God, this one took so much research because I was like, wait, did that song exist beforehand? Wait, was this on an album? And it was this constant like yeah. me trying to figure out, did it exist before this movie? And it took a while for me to figure it out. And I have it narrowed down to two okay. and I'm still, I could go either way. I mean, mine's I could go either mine's way. not classy and mine took two seconds and therefore is probably my weakest uh, entry, but you're going to enjoy it uh so best original song in a horror film from the 1990s take it my head is like a shark's fin is that from deep blue sea <laughs> is that the name of the song I was like, that's the name of the song it's ll cool j yeah, wow. my head is like a shark's yeah. That is not the one I ended up going with. That was my runner-up. Okay. Just because I will say, um, what that song did for me that I felt the need to still put it in was that it's distinctive. It fit the movie, and I can still remember it. And I can't say that for any other original song from the 1990s. Yeah, because most of these uh, movies like, are using songs, you know. That yeah, I was like, Maniac Cop 2. That's my winner. Oh, that's yours. That's, that's amazing. That's the Oscar winner. It was the only one that even came to mind. I didn't think very hard. I was just like, well, this movie ends with, he's a maniac, he's a cop. And I'm like, I'm putting it in. Maniac. My favorite two. is he might show up with an Uzi and shoot you in your jacuzzi. jacuzzi. And, and the song oh. itself is called Rap. The Maniac Cop 2 song rap. So, you know, uh, anyway, that was too easy. So, yeah, my hat is like a shark's fin was definitely the one that I was like, I'm, I feel like I need to go with it. But at the same time, I don't know if it's a good song. So I ended up actually doing my research and going with one that, holy shit, I listened to this soundtrack in repetition and especially this song. And it did took some research for me to find out it was written for this movie or specifically was only released on the movie soundtrack. And that is The Cure's Burn from the Crow soundtrack. Oh, great. Um, great call. That's actually such- really I didn't know it was made for that, but that's it is a great song. When I looked yeah. it up, the only album that song exists on is the Crow soundtrack. Yeah, so I have to assume it's on there. But goddamn, I listened to that album yeah, over and over. But that song in particular, I could still sing every single word to. Yeah. Um, so I'm going with Burn. Yeah, that's that's a lot Crow more classy soundtrack. than uh, the Maniac Cup 2 song. But you know. Or My Hat is Like a Shark's Fin. <laughs> and, because, and this is, again, another reason why it's just uh, unfathomable to me why stunts don't get an Oscar and until they do, but if they did maniac cop two would have been my stunt winner too, because the stunts in that movie are amazing. Okay. So now we're into from here on in, it's all the biggies, uh, all the big big awards. So sometimes we'll have some runner ups. Okay. So, uh, best original screenplay. Yeah. This is a tough one because I could go for kind of like obvious choice that I feel like you're going to go to, but I feel like you're going to go to obvious choice. So I'm going to go to not obvious choice that I love dearly. And that is for my best original screenplay for going the most obvious choice. I'm going to Tremors. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah, I thought so too. I had been thinking like, you know, what gave me original horror that I had not seen before? I'd seen nothing like it, something that gave me an original environment, something that gave me original characters. And I kept coming back to Tremors. 
And I was just like, that's what it did. It gave me fun characters. It gave me monsters I had never seen before, something I had never fathomed. And at the same time, it gave them biology. It gave them motivation. It gave them a reason that we've never seen them, but a reason that we're seeing them now and really fun ways to carry it. Plus, I truly believe that that movie has like perfect three-act structure. Mm. Um, So Tremors is my award for best original screenplay for the 1990s. All right, let me hit you with a couple quick um, runners up. One we talked about a couple weeks ago that blew me away on my rewatch in terms of script is Lake Placid. Great script. Oh, yeah. Tremendous script. Uh, the next one, it was between these two, and and I am going to go conventional. But with my runner up, it was from Dust Till Dawn because on a script level, that felt original. And, and it mm-hmm. felt the first big, massive twist movie of that decade where it was like, oh my God, I went into a movie thinking I'm watching a crime film. I had no idea vampires were coming. That does not happen anymore. This would have been ruined for us by the internet. And that is Alex Kurtzman and Quentin Tarantino. And the best original screenplay to me without a doubt, it's just one of the best screenplays uh, of any decade, but a particularly huge influence on the nineties. I think we would get eggs thrown at us if we did not mention. Scream. Scream. Yeah. It's an, yes. Yeah, that was the one that I assumed that you would pick just because I think that as far as looking at the best screenplay from the 90s, it's always going to be screen. Yeah, no, great. Because it's so aware of everything that came before, but giving it a new take with fresh characters and a cool setting and everything. Uh, Okay. The next one's also, like, I always get excited about this one. And I would say now, as you know, in Hollywood right now, uh, almost everything is an adaptation of something uh, IP rise. Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, I do have to say, let me just point this out that last weekend at the box office whether you love or hate some of these films at the box office last weekend we had pearl we had don't worry darling and we had barbarian all original ips not based on something else and that was your top five right there like we had three original uh, horror ips in the top five technically not original with pearl because i think it is a prequel um but But you know they all have an original story um and so being able to kind of see that i was like maybe there is hope because that's what we do here all the time in horror now is you can't sell original ip if it's not based on something else it's going to be hard to sell it's got to be a re boot or a franchise or based on a book yeah um so being able to see that's really refreshing so best adapted screenplay i'm curious where you go i've got three uh three three nominate to mention yeah i have two and i went pretty standard for this one um so my runner up is misery just because i think that you know having i had read this is one of probably the first movies that i remember reading the book before i saw the movie um because i was just old enough to binge all of my mother's stephen king hardbacks and so i had read this before i saw the movie and i remember just being impressed that it's true to the book but not so true that it's like long or arduous like there's the omissions felt natural um but the one that i selected was Candyman. makes total because if you have read the original clive barker's Candyman, it which is called the um the unforsaken the unforgiven uh, the unforgiven um it is the same at its core where it's about a graduate student who is researching graffiti and happens upon this urban legend. But at the same time, it is very much set in London and it is very much like a British 1980 story. And seeing that be transported to inner city Chicago and everything that they do with that script to make it an American story because he's rooted in an American story of racism 
that is impressive. Like that is such a strong script and how they take what is a good short story to begin with, with a really nice hook about the graffiti and then teasing the rest out of it. Like it's just a really tight adaptation where you can see the genius that Barker brought to it, but then also whoever did the adaptation who unfortunately- The director, it's the same. Yeah, the filmmaker, which is also funny. I mean, he's somebody I've long thought we need to get on the show because he's British. So it's interesting that he transposes it to Chicago uh, and, you know, just a very, you know, just such a classily made- movie anyway so uh, oh yeah that is the obvious like i i would agree like i have no doubt uh in fact that's the one that i will give my award to but i will give you my two runner up uh mm-hmm. because they're kind of fun um one uh cemetery man i think nice. that's a you know based on a novel called della morte della morte um mm-hmm. and just a very interesting movie and then uh there's a great a little french book by pierre Beaulieu and thomas nasagi called choice cuts which was uh, turned into an american film called body bars yeah. oh nice <laughs> oh seriously i love that it's based on a french oh. novel it cracks me up that body parts comes from but i do love body parts as you know and i couldn't find anywhere else to put it uh so it gets a little not but but yes Candyman is the oscar winner for both of us there excellent okay I love the acting categories. They're the part of the Oscars I always get most excited about outside of a director. Um, so, mm-hmm. And sometimes the supporting, I think in horror, the supporting roles are the best roles. I think leads often do the thankless job of being on screen the whole movie, but the supporting actors in horror get to do the crazy shit. So I agree. And that was kind of my take is like the leads a lot of times are the vanilla. You're our yeah. every man mm-hmm. or our every woman or you're the final girl, but you can get crazy in the supporting category. So let's, okay. uh, if you have a couple nominees you can list them or if you want to do your i can throw out my nominees i had david arquette for ravenous i always thought he did a really good job at that movie i mean i guess that the most obvious one would be dewey and scream so fine we'll throw that in there as well um but the one who i end up giving my best supporting actor award to um is oliver platt for lake placid that's a fun surprise i think (laughs) it's such a fun role and he is so fun in it like he makes the movie for me like the movie is fun to begin with but most of that punchy dialogue comes out of oliver platt's delivery he maybe deserves to get brandon gleason to share it with him because their back and forth is what is um it's the dim-witted cop versus the over book heavy scientist um going back and forth and and it's remarkable in that case or is he a scientist yeah i think he is he's a yeah he's researching crocs from around the world and stuff he's also really rich and kind of like a playboy basically so yeah he's very eccentric in it but yeah he has these amazing lines throughout the entire thing that i just like he makes we've just course corrected the world and lake placid has oscars now how cool is that lake placid has the world uh, well he got nominated nominated for best original um but yeah and now Oliver Platt just got a Best Supporting Actor very nomination. Exciting. Um, I mean, I could also say he's really good in Flatliners. Um, yeah, everyone's good. Is that 90s? It is. It's like a very start. Yeah, very well. start. Yeah. yeah. I thought yeah. about it for some things because it is, you know, iconic. But sometimes films are more iconic than they are great. Um, on, yeah. <laughs> uh, supporting, I actually listed a few just because it's such a good category. I have uh, my nominees are Frank Langella for The Ninth Gate. He's the one who is trying to evoke Satan. He's hilarious. And it's Sam Neill for Event Horizon, obviously. Nice. Because he's just pure gold in that. The one I thought would win yours, and I'm I'm surprised, is Robert Carlyle for Ravenous because he's incredible in that film. Mm-hmm. Like he's just utterly insane. Uh, but my winner, uh, and anyone who n- knows my uh, taste here, might be surprised because it's so over the top. But 
I love Jeffrey Combs in The Frighteners. It is, oh, it, yes. Ever since it came out, I've been a huge fan of that film. Very underrated still. And he is the thing that makes that movie sing. He is just the craziest FBI agent. Uh, and his body is, <laughs> is a portrait of pain or whatever. Uh, he just is great. And it's super fun to see Jeff Combs uh, in something. So he now has an Oscar. So how cool is that? Wow. I will also say I had down as a nominee um, Kevin J. O'Connor for Deep Rising as oh, well. Yeah. Um, yeah he's good in uh, I- Lord of Illusions too. He is. He is. He's yeah. got, there's, he's just a fun character to watch on screen. So yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Best supporting actress. Yeah. Okay. So my nominees for this, I will say, I really thought about Clea Duvall in the faculty just because mm-hmm. I love her performance in that, but I am going to give it to, um, Juliette Lewis in California. Oh, shape that dog and teach God it. damn. Oh my God. No, um, you're wittered now, Peaches. No, Juliette Lewis's performance in California here. I love this so much because the other 90s film that we saw her in, that we see her in, is Natural Born yeah. Serial Killers. Yeah. And they are so drastically different. Where in Natural Born Serial Killers, I mean, she killers, is yeah. just. Thank you. Oh, yeah. my God, sorry. <laughs> Natural Born Killer, she is just so intense and crazy and just constant, just violence. Um, whereas this, she is the victim of it. Mm. And at the same time, kind of understands it but is going along with it and she's supposed to not have a very bright intelligence, but at the same time, she picks up certain things. And I just found her performance in this to be so nuanced and so captivating. And so like, I feel bad for her. Um, like it, I just love her performance in this. And I was shocked she got second billing, but I guess, yeah, she plays the serial killer's wife. So it's a cool go. film. It's underrated yeah. for sure. So that's good to get on the board. Um, I'll, I'll list a couple that are obvious. Like this is in, there's lots of different types of support. A support can be someone who's really on the screen for like, you know, half the movie uh but mm-hmm. but the classic that would always win the oscars would be when um dame whatever her name is she would win every year for being on screen for like five minutes i cannot remember the one who was a bond uh she's in all the bond films oh yes dame, dame judy dench. dench right she won some i remember can't remember the movie she won but i swear to god she was on screen for five minutes and i was like what the fuck anyway for that i could see drew barrymore for screen getting deserving oh, a nom because nice. it's such an iconic uh, sequence uh, uh d wallace and the frighteners i like a lot too uh this actress mm-hmm. who i am less familiar with but her name's Lindsay duncan and she's in both body parts as the scientist and reflecting oh, skin. Oh, dear God. She's reflecting okay. skin as the woman who's kind of the weird woman. Oh. So she's an interesting actress with those two films to me. But my winner by far, and I love this actress still, She even even the last year or two, she's given us a couple great horror roles. Uh, but she, at this time, it was sexy and scary. Her as a mom, Alice Krieg in Sleepwalkers. Mm-hmm. Loved her. Oh you know, seeing her in Sleepwalkers when I was a kid was like weird because it was like in one way she's kind of turning you on and she's also this weird incest stuff and you're like, oh, this doesn't feel good. It's a weird oh, movie, yeah. but she's really good in it. Great actress. Wow. Deserves it. Okay. I agree. Um, so best actor, this was another one where I went a little left field. So I was definitely thinking, okay, 
Um, maybe go Exorcist three, just because I consider <laughs> I that yeah. to be such. Yeah. George C. Scott gives such a He's great good, performance yeah. in Exorcist three. I think Brad Pitt in California, but technically he is billed under David Duchovny, so it would be supporting actor. And um, yeah, I wasn't too fond of that. Of course, I think Tony Todd and Candyman is absolutely amazing. That's um, an interesting one. Though. I, would Tony Todd be a leader? I, I almost wonder. I, guess, I don't think he. No, it's, it's yeah. Kind of like I have support, to go back and yeah. look. I don't think he got top billing in that. I'm fairly sure it was secondary but um the one who i ended up going with who did get top billing rupert everett in cemetery man no Um, that's a nominee for me for sure yeah this is a hell of a performance and this one was such it's such a weird performance for me because he's kind of pathetic and not attractive but at the same time he's like really attractive and you feel for him and this is just such kind of a bizarre movie to begin with because it is so much like a it takes place in this period that does not exist. And then does it even exist? And somehow his, he's despondent. Like he feels kind of despondent and distracted through the whole movie. Like there's very much like this, this theme of despondency. Um, but it, he plays it so well. Yeah. It is just, and still captivating. Like usually if I have a despondent character, I perceive them as whiny. And at no point is he whiny. It's just kind of a general acceptance of this is the way the world is. Um, and a despondency within that. It's a brilliant performance that I love dearly. And then later so, on, Rupert Everett. He was in my best friend's wedding much later as the best gay friend, remember? So he's, <laughs> yes. he's a really terrific actor. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's good. Uh, yeah, a couple of mine, uh, Larry Fessenden, Habit. I'm a big fan of that. Oh, gosh, yeah. Javier Bardem and Perdita Durango, like insane. Mm-hmm. That could be a support. I'm not sure. Uh, Coach Yakusho, who's the actor who's in every great Japanese film uh, for The Cure. I think The Cure is, that's a great oh, film. Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Sam Neill and The Mouth of Madness, obviously. But my winner is so left field that you're going to probably be like, what? But I think when I first saw this, and again, if you watch a movie a bunch of times, something might become cheesy. But the first time I saw this movie, I was blown away by this performance. John Lithgow raising Kane. Holy fucking <laughs> shit. That is such a goddamn bonkers performance. He, he performances uh, in that film. If you haven't seen it, just do it. Go and watch this movie. John Lithgow he tears up the goddamn off the hook it's in the, this It's movie. great. And, and this is Brian De Palma at his most bonkers, at his most almost accessible in some ways, because it's kind of almost a mainstream thriller from the but it but it goes so crazy because of the performance. And I was just oh thinking gosh. when I was going deep on these lists, I suddenly got to that. I was like, wait a minute, I'm gonna give an award to John Lithgow. <laughs> uh anyway, so John Lithgow, you have probably won other Oscars like Gilbert Grape, but now you got one for Ray Now Kane. this, because this <laughs> is remarkable. Uh, okay. Absolutely Our remarkable. Best actress. Okay, best actress. So um, originally I was like, okay, Kathy Bates, but she had one for um, Misery. And so then I will say that my other runner up is, um, and I'm apologizing if I say her name wrong, Marina Zudina hmm. um, from Mute Witness. Oh, like, yeah, I, I love that film. I and- think such a tight performance. Yeah, but then I, I started that. thinking like making iconic characters that um, kind of stay with you much like the way that Kathy Bates does with Misery. And so um, this one, is, and I think that this current season is a true testament to how impactful this performance was. Bette Midler, Hocus Pocus. Oh, Okay. Yeah. Uh, do you know that I've never seen the Hocus Pocus? Really? My daughter would scream at yeah, you. Yeah, f- I've seen um, bits on TV, but I, I feel like this Halloween is the time I finally watch Hocus Pocus. 
So Hocus Pocus has admittedly been like the journey of my life yeah. um, because I watched this when I was in middle school and it was everything that I love in the world. It's a musical. It was Bette Midler um, and it's over the top and campy, but it's about witches and it's got some genuinely scary scenes in it and it's fun and it's such good gateway horror. And then um, it falls off the face of the earth and it does not do very well when it initially comes out. But there is like an entire generation of weirdo kids like me who have just grown up remembering the fun that we had with Hocus Pocus. Um, and then, you know, now 20 some years, more than that, um, like, you know, 1993, no, no, 30 years to now, they now have Hocus Pocus 2 coming out. Like if you go to Disneyland right now, it is just covered in Hocus Pocus merch. Mm. Even I was just in Spirit Halloween last week and they have an entire aisle of Hocus Pocus merch. How crazy is that? That 30 years after the movie comes out, suddenly we go, oh, hey, we should like merchandise that movie. Like Mick Garris, I hope that put another wing on your yeah, house, man. When I was, in, um, Salem, so, when I was yeah. at the Salem Horror Film Festival in a lot of the Salem haunted places, they would have merch and often were selling Hocus Pocus Blu-rays yeah. or DVDs. And I was like, oh, we got to watch that. And it was just such a wild ride to see this, what this has happened, because there was a stretch where it was like this unspoken thing where, you know, like Chelsea Stardust and I would be like, Hocus Pocus, yeah, Hocus Pocus. Um, or BJ and I would be like, Hocus yeah. Pocus. Like, it's just this thing that like, you know, adolescent girls of the 90s discovered that somehow we carried with us. So seeing its resurgence now 30 years later, I cannot fucking wait to see Hocus Pocus 2. And I love that it is the original witches. And I love the staying power of Bette Midler's character that she created in that. Okay, that is my promise to you to watch before Halloween, for our Halloween show, I'm going to watch Hocus Pocus. You need um, to watch it with your kids. Okay. And you know, you're making me rethink my list now because I had this goal of like, I'm going to watch stuff I've never seen during Halloween this year. And now I'm like, fuck it, I want to watch Sleepy Hollow. I want to watch Hocus Pocus You can always watch again. two things in a day. So, you know, so yeah, I can't. Crazy. I can't, Elric. I have kids and multiple jobs and I like to eat food occasionally. Well, um, not mistake. while standing. <laughs> I know. There it is. That's there your, it is. That's your failing in life. That's if I could only perfect, I was thinking about this yesterday as I was like sitting in two hours of traffic. If I could only perfect a way to watch movies while driving, I think I'd get arrested. But goddamn it, just yeah. economize my time. No, that's great. Um, but don't do that. That's very illegal and bad. Um, but that said, yeah, that's that's where I am. Is I don't have enough time in my day to watch all the movies I want to see, yeah. and that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. But that said, I'm now rethinking my list. So we're going to have to see how this plays out on October 1st. As long Am I going to go sleep? As long as I don't have to do the social media post, I'm good. <laughs> I just I just get to October and go, oh, no, I don't want to do that every day. Um, I know, I know, but they're, they're fun. Hire an assistant, so I, hire an assistant to post. Um, oh, yes, if anyone wants to. Poor baby has to post on Instagram. Tweet at Colors of the Dark if you'd like to be our assistant for a month. And uh, Becca will talk to you. And, and that could be very useful. Um, okay, so I've got obvious one as a runner-up, Nev Campbell obviously has become the number of one course. final girl. Uh, Lily Taylor from The Addiction. I really love what she does in that. Nice. Great actress. But my this was never this of all the awards to me was the quickest because again, like how the, what kind of kid you were in those early nineties. I this was me very early nineties. Nothing had a bigger impact on me than Twin Peaks and Cheryl Lee performance mm-hmm. in the Fire Walk with Me movie is the reason to watch it. It is the ultimate like we're about to have Blonde come out this weekend. This is the yeah. ultimate first version of something like Blonde where it's about a victim, somebody who becomes a victim and looking at the life under a microscope and she is so good in this movie that I just I think it's one of the best performances out there. So, uh, mm-hmm. I had to get it in there. Um okay. 
So now we're going to, this was the easiest one for me. I don't know about you, other than my last word, best international feature. Is it going to be easy? Um, you know, I feel like I know exactly what you're going to do and I'm going different. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to go kitty, kitty, kitty. Uh, no, because I put that in best editing. I know. Well, it's the best feature. It's, there's no better foreign film than the, for my, my money. So, okay. So I'll uh, do mine first then. I'll just say. Okay, Audition, go ahead. Audition was my best international feature. I, I can't think of a better foreign film that decade. I will say, I think Audition is great. Audition swept. Audition definitely, you know, kind of took horror by storm. Um, but I wanted to give Champion um, a film that I just still don't think gets enough acclaim. Um, and this is 1993's Kronos. Oh, yeah. Kronos is good, too. I was also it's thinking you're really about to go good. Baby Blood left field. I was like, whoa, that's left no, field. No, Baby- no. I Kronos. So Kronos was actually, um, Mexico put it up as their entry into the um, international Oscars for 1993. And it didn't even get to the nominations. Mm. And I felt like that was such a damn shame. Um, but Kronos is one of those that I just feel, this is um, Guillermo del Toro, one of his early, yeah. early films. Um, it's got Ron Perlman in it. It's it's kind of like a, a backdoor vampire film um, where this man, um, an antique dealer, I believe. Your um, watchmaker or something like yeah, that. Yeah, watchmaker. Yeah, it's got this, it's got this like steampunk mechanical mm-hmm. vibe to it. But he discovers this device that gives you eternal life. Um, but at the same time, it, it makes you hungry for blood and the device itself is cool. Cause it feels like a watch. Um, and it's at the same time, it looks almost kind of bug like, um, and it stabs your heart. So you can't remove it. It's, just a wild film that I just really do not think got enough attention in 1993. And it's one of those that, you know, I, I have students who are like, oh, Del Toro is my favorite director. And I'm like, have you seen Kronos? And none of them have. I'm like, do, go back to Kronos, go back to Devil's Backbone, and then come back and we'll talk. Because that this is essence of Del Toro. Because you have fairy tale vibe. It feels very much like a fairy tale vibe with the watchmaker. You're seeing a lot of it through his grandkids' eyes. And this whole kind of magical, mysterious device. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still a vampire film. And you got some and Ron so, Perlman, right? Ron Perlman. Yeah, Ron Perlman. And he's a fixture of the 90s. Angel, I think yeah. his name was in the movie. Yeah. Um, and he's just great in this. So yeah, Kronos was my international film Okay, choice. cool. So we have Audition and Kronos and our, as our uh, Oscar winners now. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, the last two awards, the biggies of the night. Often, often, not always. If, if you're watching the Oscars right now, they, they would stop to say... Uh, only a handful of time has best director not gone on to win best picture you never know how these things can go uh so for the best director who did you pick well there was a lot of different options here i definitely um was seriously debating putting steven summers in this bitch for the mummy I love that movie so much and I hadn't put it in anywhere else. And I was like, I feel like I'm going to be sad if I don't put Steven Summers in for the mummy. I did not. Instead, I went much darker and I went with David Fincher for seven. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, Fincher is, it's a brilliantly directed film. It is horror mm-hmm. and the thriller in the same way Lost Highway or any of these. I did friends. not check and see if this actually got nominated for an Oscar. Uh, it would have type. been nominated for Oscars, but I don't think for director or film. I don't think it was nominated for best director, Probably but I will double check. And, a, and I know those credits were a big deal. Uh, it was nominated for best film editing. That looks to be it. Not, not cinematography. So therefore. 
<clears throat> no, it was only nominated for best film editing, um, and it did not win. So yes, it it stands. It was nominated for a Saturn Award for best director. Um, so therefore, it stands. And my um, winner for best director for the 1990s is David Fincher in Seven. I did also nominate The Craft, um, and I also debated the film that will be winning my best picture. Um, but yeah, sadly I'm still, I, I just have to give like, an I love your award to Steven Summers for the mummy. But yes, I think that seven is a ridiculously well-directed film. Well, I assume Steven Summers is a listener and Steven Summers, you're invited anytime to come pick up your almost award, your, I love you award. She'll make a little heart. I love him. I love, I love him. Uh, everyone knows that now. Uh, okay. I love the mummy. Let me list a whole bunch of people. Cause there's a lot of good people here. Rob Reiner, misery, Adrian line, Jacob's letter, Peter Himes, the relic, John Carpenter in the mouth of madness. <clears throat> Probably the biggest runner up for me is Wes Craven and Scream could totally have won this. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. If Fincher, if I had thought about Fincher in this race, he probably would pip this person out. But I have to say, uh, the left field, not left field at all in here, but Bernard Rose's direction of Candyman is so great and so mm-hmm. iconic now and has stuck, you know, through 30 years that we look back and go, wow, that movie has held up so magnificently because. The film he made before this was Immortal Beloved, and it showed that the, the two, two films, you see this classical filmmaking going on in this urban horror film. So I have to go Bernard Rose for Candyman, best director. I completely agree. Great one. Oh, my God. Okay, that's, that's it. Best picture. Uh, sometimes it's anticlimactic when you go to the Oscars. Sometimes it's that movie. You're like, oh, that was obvious. Is this obvious? It's ob- I think it's, mm-hmm. it could be obvious. Best picture. Well, I think that there's the obvious choice, and then I went with my heart. Oh, I went with <laughs> so, my heart and my obvious choice. Okay, okay. So um, you may go first because I have a feeling that you went more obvious than I did. Yeah, I mean, I like like I, when we did our countdown of the '90s. To me, Candyman's the best film of the 1990s. Even though you know, Scream and things like that coming up the tail, I think Candyman is really something special, and that would be my best picture. Yes, yeah, so I went with my heart here, and I was like, what? film. And I will say I had originally put this in probably four different categories as the winner. And then I said, instead of letting it sweep, I'm just going to give it best picture. Okay. And I'm going to take it out of all of these four different categories so I can give more awards and more love. And I'm going to give it best picture because I have a feeling it would have ended up there for me anyway. And that is John Carpenter's in the mouth. That's of awesome. Madness. I love that. Yeah. I, I mean, Carpenter doesn't <laughs> so, get talked about enough. And I mean, from yeah. the '90s on, obviously. But um, that's that's a great show. I had this in editing. I had this in visual effects. I had this in production design. I had this in script. And so then um, I had this in best actor um, for Sam Neill. And then uh, finally, I was just like, I feel like I should just give this best picture because this could possibly sweep the '90s for me. This one. If you had asked me when I saw this in the 90s, is this the movie that you're going to take with you for decades? I probably would have said no. But at the same time, this movie fucked me up when I saw it in the 90s. Like, I, you know, The Relic, Lake Placid, you know, Anaconda, The Mummy. These were great. They were fun little popcorn horrors. But I remember going away from In the Mouth of Madness, like questioning my own sanity. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea of I have to do this, he wrote me this way. I remember like... You know, for being like 13, 14, like that 
was some heavy, heady shit for me of like, could an entire reality exist just because somebody wrote it? Yeah. And us being completely floored by that concept. And then everything that John Carpenter brings into it, this element of madness and how it's just infused throughout and the double fucking irises. And oh my God, this was just this movie has gone on to really be what I want to take with me from the 90s. I know that the 90s are typically big budget, giant CG creatures eating buildings, but this for me was like a quiet hit. And uh, I think it deserves a lot of acclaim. Yeah, no, so I love that. It's topping. I think I, I think that people would probably want us to put Candyman or Scream in this category, yeah. but I'm not going to do that. I went with my heart and my heart loves In the Mouth of Madness. Well, and like I said, if I was doing it purely on heart, but it's a little French, it would be Lost Highway for me because that's the film that had the biggest impact on me. But mm-hmm. I don't view that as purely horror. It, it's, it's in a lot of different genres. Uh, but to me, Candyman, pure horror, In the Mouth of Madness, great films to top this list. We have been your host for the Oscars, uh, James Franco <laughs> and uh, whoever the whoever did it with them the year that they were terrible, uh, the worst Oscars ever. <laughs> um, but yes, horror is back in the Oscars, and hopefully before the end of the year, we might even have another decade. We'll see how we. You go. know what I was shocked by? How many categories Sleepy Hollow got nominated for? That yeah. shit was nominated for like six categories yeah. that year. Uh, I probably, if um, it hadn't actually been nominated, I would have picked it for quite a few because uh, yeah. I was like, oh, this is underrated. And then when I realized it actually, like cinematography too, Darius Kanji, I think, shot that one too, and it's beautiful. Yeah. So. And Dracula had done a bunch. Silence of the Lambs was Yeah, that's why I left it off completely. Leaving off just because it had swept so much. And Misery, of course, got a couple as well. Yeah, Um, good to point that out about Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs would have been nominated for, you know, director, picture, (laughs) actor, actor. It got nominated for everything at the Oscars. So, and it really is the one time horror probably went the most mainstream um, in terms of the Oscars ever was that film. That film really- that was one that, like, I remember my mom watching oh, yeah. and being, you know, treating it like it's a classy thriller, yeah. and you know, at the same time, hell. it's totally hard. It's and George totally Romero's in it, and Roger Corman are yeah. both in it. I mean, how cool! Like, is we that? own that shit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, Jonathan it's Demme gets hard. full respect because he is a hard yeah. lover. So, um, okay, well, that was an exciting foray into the '90s, and the Oscars have been. We have fixed the Oscars. For the nine, we've corrected we've them. Corrected. Um, yes, so thank you guys so much. If this was enjoyable, we might go back and try to do our horror Oscars for the nineteen eighties, maybe 2000s. even the two thousand. The seventies. I think the seventies oh, yeah, could 60s. be fun. I'll go for as far back as this. Okay, is. but after that, it's always harder. With them. after that, it's difficult yeah. just because there's not enough films yeah. for big selections. I, think I feel. So, yeah. Um, or that I, I think fifties we could possibly do, but once you get like forties was not, there was not a lot. Once Vincent Price is winning best actor for the Tingler, you know, you're, you might have problems. <laughs> oh, come on. He totally fucking deserves it. That I'm acid saying. trip. I'm saying that I love was him. total Academy Award. He would get my no- own nomination. I'm just saying, but that, that shows you there wasn't a lot of competition. Honestly, I feel like William Castle should win best actor for all of that, just yes. for those opening scenes. Exactly, so yeah, exactly. we'll just give him honorary Oscar for 1950s. Um, um but anyways, I got to go catch yeah, a flight to New thing. York City for a couple of days because I'm headed to the AMC Summit in New York, which is, or Brooklyn, um, which is really exciting. Um, but we will well, be back next week with an all new Deep Cuts. I've got one that will literally probably be going up before this episode streets. And, so, and I'm excited. Yeah. I'm headed to the couch. So I will see you soon. I'm going to go watch a movie <laughs> and enjoy Good myself. plan. All right. I got, I got some plane reading, so I'll report back okay. next week on uh, what I binge while Sounds on the good. plane. Sounds good. Travel so. safe. Excellent. Have a good one, guys. Happy start of October.
The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. 